Our American Stories, and this actually sounds like a little bit of the synthesizer beats from Don't You Want Me Baby. Is this some uh, 80s pad music, Jesse? No, it's actually Chromio. It's pretty new stuff. So it's new old stuff? Yeah, it's the new, like, throwback, hi-fi synthesizers. Yeah. Cool. A little more? Funky bass line? Yeah. I'm liking it. <laughs> Are we going to be talking to these guys? You said we're going to be talking to the Chromio guys? Yeah, soon. We'll have them on. Okay, great. That's a, it's like a big... So what do we say? We can't say we can't say the F word anymore. So we say... Uh, um, what do we say? Ch- weight challenged? Weight challenged oh, Arab. Oh, fat. A, yeah. yeah, right, fat. There's, a, there's, a, there's an overweight <laughs> Arab guy. And then there's like a Jewish guy. And they, they get on the stage and make this music. And I'm looking forward to talking to those guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Playing some of Jesse and Alex's favorite music here on Our American <laughs> Stories. And recently, one of our producers came across a blog post at herviewfromhome.com. By the way, that's... Uh, Why were you there? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, yeah, but that's okay. It's, it's like not, something it my mom liked on Faith, Facebook. this wasn't you? This wasn't you? No, Faith is going, not me. <laughs> and by the way, this is an online woman's magazine with daily articles about family, kids, fashion, health, recipes, faith. I mean, it sounds like a, a good site. And there was a post from Debbie Baisden. And the title of the post is sure to grab your attention. And the content is sure to pull at your heartstrings. And for good reason. Debbie agreed to read it for us. And here she is with her piece called Stop Being a Butthole Wife. Stop being a butthole wife. No, I'm serious. End it. Let's start with the laundry angst. I get it. The guy can't find the hamper. It's maddening. It's insanity. Why? Why must he leave piles of clothes scattered the same way that the toddler does, right? I mean, grow up and help out around here, man. There is no laundry fairy. What if that pile of laundry is a gift in disguise from a God you can't yet see? Don't roll your eyes. Hear me out on this one. I was a butthole wife until my husband died. The day my husband left earth for heaven, all of my marriage problems vanished. There was no one to fuss at, negotiate with, or play possum at bedtime. You know, when you pretend you're asleep to bypass sex. Marriage is designed to be a reflection of Christ's love for his people. It's supposed to be beautifully harmonious and intimate How often I screwed that up with bickering and manipulating. I wanted a perfect husband who acted how I wanted. And if that didn't happen, well, butthole wife was in full effect. If only he could understand how right I was and how wrong he'd always be. I needed to instruct him, question him, and remind him of his shortcomings. After all, I was his helpmate. The reality is, I wasn't helping him or our marriage. By pointing out each fault, I was poisoning the relationship. Oh, it was still a good marriage, and we deeply loved each other. But it was not what it could have been. And now it was too late. 
Days after his funeral, I stared at our dirty clothes basket that sat atop our dryer, knowing his clothes were inside. I sighed so deeply. Before me was the last load of laundry I would ever wash for that sweet man. There would be no more dirty socks to pick up around the house. Ever. A week before, I would have rolled my eyes at that basket. But now, it held priceless treasures. I waited weeks to wash those clothes. My heart ached for dirty socks to once more be a part of my days. Those messes dotted around the house are reminders of God's gifts to us. Like Jesus, we have the opportunity to demonstrate love by serving those we live with. And the last time I checked, not a single person is perfect. How many times had my husband kept quiet, listened, and endured? He shared no list of ways that I needed refinement. He simply loved me. Those clothes were painfully cleaned and boxed away or donated. The tears, countless. And God, the lover of my soul in his infinite mercy, later gave me a special gift. He has allowed me to love again, to wear a second wedding dress, and to be a better wife. I married a wonderful man. I am still a butthole wife, but I am working on edifying the man who provides for my sons and me. I now strive to hug more and nag less. My goal is to make him feel respected, important, valued. I want to live love. Recently, I walked into the master bedroom and I stopped, nearly bursting into tears. I saw a pile of dirty clothes that my new husband had abandoned on the floor. As I stared at the pile, I smiled. I knew he had hurried to change out-of-work clothes into comfy clothes so he could spend more time with his new family. He had chosen what is more important. I happily scooped the treasures into my arms and carried them to the washing machine. I get to do this. I get to serve. I get to live with a wonderful man who ditches laundry for people. Let us not become weary in doing good. Galatians 6, 9. And what a beautiful piece from Debbie Bazin. We started off sort of goofing off, but boy, that it turned all of us around. Something to think about. And we like to do that here on Our American Stories. Turn the tables. And uh, we're all cheering up a little bit here, and hopefully you are too, and hopefully... That moves you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better friend, a better everything. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and today we have Faith bringing us another story from the villages in Florida. And it's not just a retirement community, folks. The villages have over 600 holes of golf, 2,200 clubs, and over 150,000 residents over the age of 55. And we've been sending Faith, our intrepid 21-year-old producer, to get stories from those residents. Take it away, Faith. Margie Bates is an 87-year-old villager and has lived in the villages for quite some time now. And on a beautiful Friday morning, she invited me over to her home so that she could share her story with me. Sorry, <laughs> good morning, Margie. How are you? I don't, how are you? I'm good. Oh, are you ready for sunshine today? It's warm outside. Huh? You feeling good today? Yeah, I am. I'm feeling good most days, you know, just to get a bit draggy. But I'm getting over that, I think. Before we get into how Margie got to the villages, however, did you notice her accent? Well, how did she even end up in the States? Because Margie, she grew up in London, England with her family. Now, this is probably not the London that you are thinking of, with Big Ben, the giant Ferris wheel, the London Eye, and the changing of the guard. This was London during World War II. Watching dogfights and hearing bomb sirens growing up, can't imagine what that would do to you, or how that would affect you in your life. What was it like growing up during World War II? Not too nice. Because <laughs> I'm living in London, we got you know, a lot of bombing. Uh, uh, my dad was working in London then. Uh, uh, but then, uh, when it first started, I can remember when I was probably 10 years old, the day they declared war. And it was Sunday. And uh, nobody, I mean, I suppose the adults had talked a lot about it, but, um, you know, I wasn't too aware of much. And I just, I remember saying to my sister, should we get under the bed? You know, like, like immediately the Germans were coming for us. So that was kind of interesting growing up, how people, you know, we couldn't show a light. We had to have this uh, blackout paper on the, on the windows. Some people painted their windows black, which is, must have been awful to get off. Um, so it was, um, I remember uh, when it started and my sister uh, got married in the August of, of that year. Uh, uh, so we had the wedding at home. And I remember that evening was when we had the, uh, uh, the Battle of Britain and the Germans, because we were in England, we could, they sent over all their planes and they were having dogfights up there, and uh, we kept running outside to look at that. But then I kept running back. My dad had fixed up the cellar so we could sleep down there. Um, uh, so I kept going out looking, but then it scared me that I'd go run down into the cellar again and come back and look. Uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very scary time. And uh, we, we could, because of where we lived, we were close to railway stations where they do a lot of bombing. 
And uh, so we had uh, um, we had a lot of uh, you know houses bombed around our area. Um, as I say, we would go down in the cellar to sleep at night. And uh, we did have a house, probably it was around the corner, but it was probably only six houses away from us that was badly bombed, and everybody was killed, you know, in that house. Um, my dad went out to check what, because you could tell it was close, and uh, stumbled over a body, which was absolutely horrible for him. I remember going to school or something, and the siren would sound. And uh, I remember this one day I darted into, there were some uh, like apartment type houses down the street from us, and they had little porches with glass doors. And I remember getting going in there when the siren sounded, uh, and, and I thought of this, what a silly place to go because <laughs> there was all this glass in there. Uh, but then eventually, as I say, it changes you what you would have been doing in your life. Not only did Margie see the devastation of World War II, she had some personal loss as well. At 14 years old, Margie's father passed away. She told me the story. She said it was in the middle of the night. Her father sat up in bed and her mother asked him, Honey, what's wrong? And he said, oh, nothing, I just, I just need a smoke. And that night, he had a heart attack. Perfectly healthy, she said. It was quite a shock to all of them. To add even more hurt and pain, her brother was off fighting in Africa during World War II. So when he came home a year later, adjustment to life without dad, that must have been hard. I don't think I dwelt on it too much because of how old I was because uh, I miss my dad a lot. Uh, Were was, you close? Huh? Were you close? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody was close in my family, you know. Uh, I remember as a kid, one of the things I used to do, and I don't know if it was just on a Friday evening, but I'd go to the... Uh, he used to go to uh, work on the underground, um, and I'd go and meet him. And then we'd walk home hand in hand. And I think then he used to give me my pocket money. So, <laughs> uh, but he, he, was, he was a good dad, yeah. yeah. I'm so thankful that Margie has memories of her father, those sweet memories that she holds in her heart. While I was there, she showed me a picture of herself sitting on her daddy's lap. I could tell she was a daddy's girl. There's nothing like a sweet relationship between father and daughter. The war had just ended and time, of course, moved forward, leading Margie to meet her husband, Bill Bates, an American boy. We met at an ice skating rink in uh, Richmond, England. My girlfriend and I, that I worked with, uh, once in a while I'd go home with her and we'd go skating. Uh, I wasn't much of a skater, but uh, if I skated with somebody, <laughs> it was okay. So we were there this night, and uh, a friend of his, who I had now, I can't remember how I had met him, but anyway, he was a skater. He was in the Air Force with Bill, 
Um, and he had brought Bill to the skating rink. Bill didn't skate at all. Um, so, you know, the, he introduced me to him and that was it. <laughs> so he, he took me to the station because we both had to get the train to go home. And uh, so I, th I think uh, after that, we just dated. Did you hit it off right away? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of him when you first saw him? Well, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just went over and talked to him. I never thought about him being the one. <laughs> you know, you meet some people and you say, oh, you know, taken in by their looks or whatever. But, uh, so he was... Um, uh, Actually, he was the first person I took home, even though I had lots of boyfriends before that. Uh, and I, I was just 21 and he was 20. So I, because he didn't have any family here, you know, I took him home first time to dinner. And uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because he didn't eat this later, but when we were first there, um, it was Sunday dinner, so he had a big dinner, and uh, he he said, "Could he have some bread with some uh, jelly?" Everybody thought, "Jam and bread," you know, <laughs> seems so funny. Um, but that was, I guess, he was young, and that's what he'd maybe eaten. Anyway, so he right away he enjoyed being with family and getting to come over and uh, um, so he just, you know, my family liked him right away but they thought some things that he ate were a little bit strange. <laughs> and when we come back, more from Margie Bates and Faith's visit, visit to the villages and, well, Bill was an American boy and that's what Margie saw and we learned there Margie lost her, her dad way too early at 14. When we come back, this unlikely story from the villages, this lady from London, how did she get to the United States? More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Faith's conversation with Margie Bates. We learned that Margie grew up in London at the toughest time in London's history, no doubt. And that was the siege of the Nazis on London itself, the fire bombings, the attacks. And, well, she met a, an American boy while she was there. She lost her dad, and we picked things up where Faith left off. After dating for a handful of years, they got married. And Bill's time serving in England was up. So both of them were moving back to the States. Well, back to the States for Bill. Not so much back home for Margie. One can only imagine what that must have been like. Picking yourself up and moving to a whole new country. But not only that, she was going to be living with her in-laws. Were you homesick when you came? Oh yeah, terribly. <laughs> 
because I had gone from living in London most of my life. Uh, we moved to London when I was five. Um, and then we went straight to Bill's parents, who had a rice farm in Arkansas. And, uh, they were really nice, but he, he went to work on the farm and left me, you know, with his mother. <laughs> and we had the, you know, jet lag. So um, I probably didn't get up till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was, she was very nice, but I think she, whether she decided she wasn't going to wait on me or something, but I expected, like my family would have, you know, made tea or made me breakfast. I don't know, perhaps she made me breakfast. But anyway, that, that first day, was awful, I think. But she was very nice, but I just didn't feel like it was my house. I mean, I would help her do washing up, and, and we did the washing, the laundry together. So yeah, I got, you know, I got to be okay with her. But I really couldn't wait to get out of there. I did a lot of crying in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I didn't stay there for hours and cry. I would just, you know, get a little upset. Bathroom's always a good place to go and nobody's gonna interfere with what <laughs> you're doing. So it, it was a big, big change. Culture shock, I guess you call it. There's nothing quite like the feeling of homesickness. It's hard. Cause it seems like all you want is a hug from your mother. I'm sure for Margie, the food was different. The place was different. So adjustment was incredibly difficult. Change, no one's really quite ready for it, I would say. Change is necessary oftentimes. It strengthens and grows us in ways that we otherwise wouldn't have. Would your family think about you coming here? <laughs> My mother thought, oh, I thought Bill would just go home when it was done. And I said, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to date somebody that long just to say, oh, well, goodbye. <laughs> so uh, they they never, I think they didn't like it, but they liked him. And uh, they never said anything bad that I shouldn't be doing this or whatever. So, uh, and I think when you're that young, you don't, um, I knew I would miss them, but... You don't stop to think about all that stuff, you know. So, do you still miss England? Yeah, I. I mean, you get to a point where wherever you are is is home. Um, but I, I was fortunate enough that I went often enough, you know. Um. So after some time of living in the country of Arkansas, basically in the middle of nowhere. Margie and her husband Bill made a road trip. They set out on their journey from Arkansas to California. An 1,800-mile journey with a five-week-old baby in their backseat. But they were determined. This was an opportunity for Bill to be able to go to a good school. Well, I, I had no idea how far away it was. And we drove and uh, uh, in the summer, and I'm sure my in-laws must have thought we were crazy. Didn't have good motels 
in those days of hotels. And I remember stopping uh, because I would go take a look at it. I didn't want to go in some flea bag place. <laughs> but um, none of them were great in those days. They're not at all like hotels now. Uh, so I remember like the one night when we uh, when we stopped and then washing baby bottles, you know, in the little bathroom sink, I guess it was. So we were a bit crazy. Margie and Bill loved California. After living in California for a handful of years and having a couple kids along the way as well, Margie's husband, Bill, well, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is a disorder of the central nervous system that affects movement, often including tremors, and handshaking, which meant he had to quit his job. Parkinson's disease is actually what led them to the villages. We had been living in uh, Chula Vista in San Diego County, and uh, we had a very big house. And we also, because of Bill having Parkinson's, we didn't have a good support group. So we thought, well, we would come out here and take a look not thinking that we bought the next day. And what was it like when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's? It sort of wasn't shocking because I didn't know anything much about it. So, you know, it was one of those things that, oh, you know, we'll take care of this sort of thing. But then, because he really wasn't having symptoms, he was a little handshaking. It was strange because he said, oh, that was, uh, uh, his father had had a little bit of that. Well, I had never noticed his father having it. So it took a while for the doctors to diagnose that. But for a long time, it was, um, didn't really bother anything much. He always kept up his exercising and uh, used to go to the pool and work out. I think I would say probably until we came here, which then he probably had it about several years and, and didn't really stop him doing anything. And the same when we came here, but there's been a gradual uh, thing where it got worse. You know? And you could not convince him that he couldn't do stuff because he was a man. <laughs> Don't go outside, honey, you can't do that. Yes, I can. It wasn't all bad, you know, like especially at first. We made good friends with the Parkinson's group. It's something I think that takes, you know, you just sort of live with it. Another thing in life that you put up with, you know. After living there for a while, of course, Parkinson's doesn't tend to get better. Instead, Bill got worse and eventually had to go into rehab. But the last time he was in a rehab, and uh, he was supposed to be there for good uh, because of falling and things like that. Um, so he, they did not have a room for him. And so I said, you know, you're coming home. That's, um, I wish I had made that decision a long time before. Uh, so anyway, he came home, and I can't remember now, it was around Christmas time, I think. Still okay to a point. He was starting to have trouble with his swallowing, 
which is what happens with Parkinson's. Invariably, that's what happens to everybody. And when we come back, our final segment with Faith and Margie Bates. And this is our continuing series. Our 21-year-old producer, our newest uh, addition to our American stories. On the road in the villages in Florida, bringing us Margie Bates' story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our Faith Garcia, joining Margie Bates at the Villages. And when we left off last, Margie's husband, Bill, well, things were getting worse because of his bout with Parkinson's disease. And then, of course, he was losing weight, and uh, anyway, hospice people did not want him uh, to be eating in case he choked, um, which, you know, I was quite upset with that because, to me, he wasn't getting any worse. So they sort of stopped feeding him except for, um, you know, soft foods and drinks. And he had, he was fortunate, he had this wonderful caregiver, Rosa. And uh, so then it was just, downhill from there. Uh, And I was looking, I have a a picture of he and I when he was much younger, and uh, I was sort of comparing how he looked, you know, because he got so thin and so pale. Uh, But it was almost like I didn't see him like that, you know. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you be married. A long, long time, you know. So we would have been married uh, 63 years in the May following. So you feel like you just saw him still as his young self, or...? Yeah, well, I I didn't like the way he looked. um, But, you know, that's what happens when you don't... I mean, he lost such a lot of weight because the hospice... um, they have their own way of doing things, and he would always still try and get out of bed. And and up till they started with him, um, he he could do that with help or put him in the wheelchair. But then they decided that it would be better if he didn't get out of bed. And uh, he would still insist he was okay to get up. He could walk. Nobody could tell him that he couldn't. So then they, uh, uh, the nurse then that would come, uh, she said, okay, we'll let you see if you can. So she got on one side of him and Rosa got on the other, and then he started to stand up, but, but he couldn't. By then, he really got too weak. Just last year, Bill Bates passed away. 
And after Bill's passing, Margie was left with a lot of reflection. Having the same person by your side for nearly 60 years and then having them die, that's extremely difficult. Not only that, but people who have lost longtime spouses describe living without them like trying to walk around with one leg. March 11th. Was it from Parkinson's? Well, you know, they say you don't pass away from Parkinson's, but you pass away from what, which doesn't make sense to me, because you pass away from what Parkinson's does to you. And uh, he was, um, he had a few falls, which is natural for Parkinson's, and uh, had some injuries from that. How did you deal with it when you felt lonely after Bill passed away? How did I feel? Uh, well, it's hard to describe, you know. You just feel lost. Um, I, I just, you, you have an awful lot of looking back and thinking, I should have done this. Because when you're together all those years, uh, You know, I can see times when I wasn't the best of people, you know, just like anybody else. So, uh, I mean, I didn't do anything <laughs> bad, but, you know, get mad with each other and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. So that brought a lot of stuff back to where, uh, you know, I felt a little guilty about some things. Yeah, the only thing when he was going through uh, the last year or so because he loved sweets and the sweets affected his medication so it made him think he could do things and get a little mad um, and, and I think to myself you know I was really very cautious about him having this and uh, he loved bananas and um, if he it was kind of funny because I, he'd have a banana with his breakfast, but if he was, didn't matter how many he'd had, if he was driving by there in his wheelchair, he'd just reach up and grab a banana, put a big smile on his face, and then I'd say, you can't have that. <laughs> so, you know, it makes you think some of those times I should have let him have it, you know, but... You just, when you're looking after them, you just do what you think is best for them, you know. It's sweet that she still saw him as her bill. She still loved him and wanted to take care of him. It really makes you think. It makes you think about how you treat those around you, especially your family. Are those fights that we have, the bickering, things that we can't seem to let go, the little grudges, are they really worth that last word that we want to get in? Margie certainly didn't think so. She didn't have huge regrets. But she did wish that she could have taken back some things. Her self-reflection and her introspection should be emulated. We should consider how we love those around us as well. And maybe there are more things that we need to just let go. Margie has now been learning to readjust to life without Bill. 
along with overcoming injuries from falls that she has had herself. So she tries to move forward for motivation and confidence because it's easy to lose your confidence. But Margie refuses to live life in fear. And she moves forward and at 87 years old, she's starting a new chapter in her life. I mean, that leaves the rest of us without excuse. From, from having all the things that happened to me, you know, get fracture on my back and then not walking for a long time. I mean, I could walk, but resting. Gradually, I think I lost my confidence uh, that I had before, uh, but it's, uh, it's coming back. Confidence in what? In myself, I think, you know, because you spend so much time you're not doing anything, and that wasn't me, you know. So, uh, and, and I try to uh, be more confident because, uh, you know, it's gradually coming back. It, it took a while, you know, and I hadn't been driving for so many months uh, to do that and to worry about if I fell again. But uh, that's all getting past. So I feel like I'm more myself. You know, and then I can tell because for a long time there, um, I I didn't really want to do anything. I couldn't focus as what happened. Uh, you know, I think I can do this, and I'm not. I watch TV. You know. So starting back doing things for yourself was difficult. It, well, I don't. I wouldn't say difficult. It was just slower. I had to, you know, because I couldn't move too fast anyway. So like taking a shower, I'd have to, you know, give myself plenty of time. I find it's recently, when you think about somebody dying, it's, it's very hard for me to think, you know, one minute they're there and the next minute they're not, you know, like, where did they go? Uh, it's probably you'll go through that when you get older. It's just not something you think about much, you know. Oh, they've passed away, you know. But um, it makes you think a little bit more about death somehow. I mean, you always assume, oh, they've gone to heaven. And then, then, uh, then you wonder, well... You know, I was brought up a Catholic, so you always heard about purgatory. And then sometimes I think it's purgatory on earth, you know. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, um, you know, and Christ said, you will be with me in heaven. Margie has brought us a lot of things to consider. Life, death, family, there's so many other wonderful things that she shared, but I'm just thankful that I got the time that we did. Thanks, Margie, for sharing your story with me. And thanks, Faith, for doing that. And my goodness, what an honest voice. Straight as an arrow. It's why we love talking to old people and kids. No nonsense. No time for it. No reason for it. No airs. We look forward to the next Next story from the villages are Faith, Margie Bates, and Bill Bates. We got to know him. 
married 60 years, and you could feel the pain and the loss. This is Our American Stories. stories and from time to time we like to take a deep dive on a book we've done it with amity schlaes and forgotten man we did it with david mcculloch and we did it with the wright brothers story my favorite of his believe it or not and he's written so many great books on the greatest americans in history and another favorite of ours and one of our favorite writers by the way too it's just a great read every time in the wall street journal reading about people talking about their cars Famous people, not so famous people. It's A.J. Bame, and he writes regularly about cars for the Wall Street Journal. But he's also author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And we love to tell great American stories about the impact businesses have had on this country, uh, on the employment level, on the growth of this country, the American dream. But, boy, the impact that a person like Ford had in our ability to fight and repel the Nazi menace is, I think, underreported. And, A.J., thanks so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. You bet. So let's start off in the 1930s, if we could. What was going on at this time? The Nazis were up to no good. They were, they were building up a huge military. Uh, while we have one smaller than Belgium. Talk about that. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I mean... Uh, I think a lot of people today look back at World War II and think, well, Hitler was evil and uh, we beat up on the Nazis and that was it. It was very complicated and started in the 1930s during the Great Depression uh, due to neutrality acts and lack of funds and lack of resources in the United States. Our military really went to pot. Um, We had an army that ranked 16th in the world in size with fewer than 200,000 men uh, when World War II started in Europe. Uh, compared to 7 million Nazi soldiers. We had no legitimate munitions industry in this country. Um, The Army Air Corps had fewer than 1,300 combat planes. Most of them were technologically obsolete. We were completely uh, unprepared for war, whereas Hitler had been planning for years and had built up this massive military industry and force. Uh, And that was the very basics of the picture when Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. And AJ, a lot of it has to do with, I think, two things, probably. World War I, I think we were exhausted. Foreign entanglements may not have been our bag. And then the Great Depression. And you add those two things together, and that might explain the nature and, and, and size and inconsequential nature of our, of our military. Absolutely. Also, just the fact that after World War I, you know, it's hard for people to fathom today with modern communications and everything and radio, you know, 
just just the idea after World War One that the United States we had this giant moat around us. We had the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on one side, and after World War One, our leaders were thinking that we really didn't need to be involved in foreign wars. Um, through the 1920s and 30s, things really changed politically, economically, as populations grew and, and technology grew. Countries became linked together in ways that were not anticipated earlier by our political leaders. So after World War I, it was not so hard for politicians to sign neutrality acts, saying we are not going to go to war in other countries. Um, they didn't anticipate something like Hitler coming along. Well, and what happened in Europe stays in Europe. Well, that just wasn't as much the case. Uh, I guess is your basic proposition, AJ. Exactly. And, w- and one of the things I, I write about quite a bit in the arsenal of democracy is the whole, the, the fact that the bomber aircraft was really a game-changing weapon, because here was a weapon that could take off from an aircraft carrier somewhere far away, fly 1,500 miles, and drop bombs on, on civilian populations. Uh, of course, the airplane existed during World War I, but nothing like the modern aircraft that really revolutionized warfare. So at the end of the 1930s, when the war began in Europe, Hitler had all these amazing bombers. He had built the Luftwaffe, the first modern air force. We had nothing like it. It's so true. And by the way, let's not forget, even as we approached World War II, there were really, really strong poles to isolationism. I mean, you had some of our most famous politicians and political figures and, and frankly, some of our most famous Aviators, uh, we can name one, Lindbergh, who just thought this is a waste of time. Absolutely. The two biggest anti-war activists in 1940, well, just to address your point, of course, the great debate of the nation in 1940 was about isolationism versus interventionism. Should we be a part of this war going on in Europe? What, the Hitlers were, what Hitler and the Nazis were doing was obviously terrifically unjust. Uh, they were when they you know they attacked London. They were killing civilians. They were rounding up Jews. Although most people didn't realize that early on. Um, what what should be our role? There were a lot of very powerful figures in America who said that we should have nothing to do with this. And two of the most powerful, high-profile anti-war activists in 1940, leading right up to Pearl Harbor, were Henry Ford, who came to play a major role in World War II, as we will soon find out, and Charles Lindbergh. It's amazing to think that, you know, at the beginning of the war, we were desperate for aircraft engineers, desperate for airplanes and pilots, because the aircraft was going to be the revolutionary weapon in the war. And Hitler, because, I mean, and uh, Lindbergh, because he was an anti-war activist, he couldn't, get, he couldn't get a job in the Army. He was not allowed to fly. Fascinating. And by the way, the more things change, the more they stay the same, AJ. Isolationism versus interventionism. You think we're still talking about that and grappling with that? I think that's one of the more fundamental discussions we're battling with here on the foreign policy uh, front in America. And I don't know that there are clear answers. I think there were clearer answers then, though, AJ. I think World War II was the end of the era when clear answers would present themselves. I think that's so true. And when we come back, we're going to deep dive and take a deep dive into A.J. Bame's book, The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And when you get a chance, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Go to Topics, and under Topics are This Day in History. Now has about 125 stories. One of them is the life of Henry Ford. We touch a little on this interventionism and non-intervention argument in Ford's life, but what we really drive, drive down on is what Ford did and how he helped create an industrial America. He and Rockefeller 
and some of these other robber barons who've been reviled, and perhaps properly so on some in some dimensions, but in others, perhaps not. When we come back, more with A.J. Bame and his great book after these messages. Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with A.J. Bame, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And go to Amazon and get this book. It came out in 2014, but you know what? Buy it. Um, an older book is a newer book if you haven't read it. And we love drilling down on some of these books and stories that intersect with some of the things we talk about here on Our American Story. Uh, A.J., what was the automobile industry doing in the 1930s, both in the United States and and equally important in Europe? Okay, very complicated. Let me see if I can boil it down um, to just a few points here. For starters, the Great Depression, people were buying cars like wildfire in the 1920s. The Great Depression comes and people stopped buying cars. Um, and, And the automobile industries really suffered. So that's point number one. Point number two, in 1935, Roosevelt um, signed into law an act which enabled legally workers to unionize for the first time. And this was really a game-changing thing in the automobile industry. Suddenly, it put a lot of power into the hands of workers that they didn't have before and really pit workers against the companies they worked for. Now, General Motors and Chrysler, two of the big three, signed very important deals with the unions in 1937, 1938. Henry Ford refused to do so. So um, the Ford Motor Company at this time became a real hotbed of potential violence and eventually violence because there was so much stress in the power struggle between the unions and Ford and the men that ran the company. Now, in Europe... In Germany specifically, Germany had the only economy in the world at the time that, that, that had a labor shortage. German, the German economy, the Nazi economy in the late 1930s was booming. People didn't realize at the time why. The reason why was because Hitler was building this extraordinary military power. Um, the American companies, the automobile industries, had uh, big investments inside Nazi Germany that they could not afford to lose during the Great Depression. It was the only place where they were really making a lot of profits, but this put uh, the automobile companies in a very delicate position in terms of their relationship to the Nazi empire. That's a real jam they're in, AJ. Oh, yeah, and, real jam. And not one that, that, that they could have foreseen. And so often, many of the jams we enter into our lives, we didn't know we were about to enter. They, they just sort of happen. And uh, let's talk about the importance, uh, before we get, go forward, let's talk about the importance of Henry Ford's innovation in mass production and the ability to lower the price of cars, move out the number of cars made with greater speed and rapidity. I think it has great consequence for what happens next. Talk about that. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, Henry Ford, people talk about the Model T as being his, you know, his masterpiece, but his masterpiece was really not the car. It was the factory that could produce it. He had this wild imagination that enabled him, and it wasn't all him, of course. There were, there were people who worked with him who were extremely important early on, like William Knudsen and Charlie Sorensen, these great two Danes, by the way, these great production engineers. And all these minds together dreamed up these massive factories with integrated mass production that en- enabled them to produce a lot of cars very cheaply and enabled Americans and people all over the world to buy cars, so the automobile revolutionized human life and the human economies. Your book is um, your book is titled "The Arsenal of Democracy," which, of course, was the title of FDR's famous fireside chat. Let's listen to this clip, and then I'll ask you a quick question. Guns, planes, ships, and many other things have to be built in the factories and the arsenals of America. They have to be produced by workers and managers and engineers with the aid of machines, which in turn have to be built by hundreds of thousands of workers throughout the land. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. Talk about the importance, A.J., of that speech, both at home and abroad, because the Nazis were listening to this speech, too. Just to listen to FDR's voice, so moving. Every time I hear that, right now, even as I speak, I have goosebumps all over my arms. It was so moving. Now, the point in the Arsenal of Democracy, the book I wrote, there's two narratives happening at the same time. One is FDR realizes before everybody else that America is going to get stuck in this war. And before everybody else, he envisions a way that the war will be fought and won. It was going to be a contest of mass production. And so as you heard in this, uh, what he was just saying is we need to build guns, ships, airplanes, jeeps, tents, field kitchen, underwear. We need to sew underwear. We need to have farmers grow food. All of that has to happen with more speed and more volume than it ever happened before in the history of the world. What? That's what FDR yep. is saying. Now, the, the, um, the automobile industry becomes involved because there was no industry on earth with greater mass production expertise than the automobile industry. So um, that's, that's uh, how the automobile industry came to play a starring role. Now, you asked about Europe. Yes, indeed. The, the, uh, the Nazis were listening in, and I write about this in my book, of what the Nazis thought when they heard that speech, and they just didn't believe that America could do what had to be done to defeat the Nazis. They didn't believe it could happen. Yeah, there's a quote in your book, in which you uh, sort of pointed out that even Joseph Goebbels listened to the speech and said this, what can the USA do faced with our arms capacity? They will never be able to produce as much as we, we who have the entire economic capacity of Europe at our disposal. Disposal, uh, a, a slight underestimation on Goebbels' part. Absolutely. And why did he have a complete, you know, capacity of Europe because the Nazis had conquered most of Europe by the time FDR had given this speech. Um, It's amazing to think about, but the Nazis too, they understood that this war was going to be fought not just with, you know, infantrymen and lines on battlefields, it was going to be fought in factories at home. So how does FDR drag Henry Ford into this war effort? It's quite a story. Talk about that if you could, AJ. 
It's amazing to think that Henry Ford, at the time, he's one of the most outspoken anti-war activists. He's a great enemy, a personal enemy of Roosevelt. He hated Roosevelt. Um, and it's very complicated how he became involved. Two things happen. One is FDR called the president of General Motors, William Knudsen, and asked Newton, who, was, who had the largest salary of any man working outside of Hollywood in the country, to come down to Washington and work for the government for $1 a year. And Newton left his job as the president of General Motors to take this job at one buck a year to help America prepare for war. And Newton was key because he, he was really the one who got the automobile industry on board, right? Um, the other thing that happened was Pearl Harbor happened, and, uh, you know, once Pearl Harbor, Harbor happened, it really ignited the patriotism, in, even in anti-war activists like Henry Ford. The third thing is Henry Ford's son, Etzel, who plays a very important part in my book, The Arsenal of Democracy. He was a fan of Roosevelt's, and Etzel had quite a bit to do with getting his father and getting Ford Motor Company involved in the war. And everything that happens after that is really fascinating. That's really the guts of what this book is about. Yeah, we're going to dig into that in the next segment, AJ. Uh, just a bit here, how did Henry Ford build his first automobile? Let's go back again before we go forward, because there's a tremendous backstory here about this guy who grows up in a Detroit, in a Michigan farm and ends up giving us this freedom that we all enjoy today, the affordable car. It started with a, a, a gadget. He was playing around in, his, um, in a shed behind his house. He was uh, living in Detroit in an apartment with his wife and his only child, Edsel. He had very little money. Edsel was a baby. Um, and uh, he was just building this sort of invention in the back in this shed. Now, the car, the motor car existed. Carl Benz had built one, you know, some 15 years earlier. But there was no and there was an automobile industry at the time, but it was very small. And there was no brands that were nationally known. It was just a bunch of tinkerers. Um, Henry Ford built this this vehicle in a shed and he drove it through Detroit. And uh, the car was really spread its own gospel. It was its own PR machine. People saw it and thought to themselves, wow, look at that thing. And he was able to begin to open a factory and be, begin building these things successfully, which is a very difficult thing to do. Hundreds of automobile companies existed, and 95% of them probably went out of business. Um, his genius was building factories that could spit these things out cheaply on volume. And it had to do in the end with efficiencies of scale, and operational talents that others hadn't possessed. A quote from the book, his company summed up the philosophy of Ford, quote, I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one. When we come back, we're going to dive into the relationship between Henry Ford and his son Etzel, because it is the central part of this narrative, and it is why, in the end, Henry Ford enters the war and helps power the arsenal of democracy. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking about a great book, and it's by a Wall Street Journal writer, A.J. Bame, The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with A.J. Bame, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. And we periodically take some deep dives into our favorite books. Uh, this is the fourth, by the way, not fifth, but the second from a Wall Street Journal writer. We did uh, a terrific uh, dive on the foolproof, uh, terrific book by Greg Ipp, who is the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. We left off things with uh, you talking to us about Henry Ford and his and Etzel and how Etzel played a key part in bringing the father closer to the war effort and to FDR. And by the way, as we know, Henry Ford had no love of FDR. Talk about that. Well, excellent. Etzel Ford um, was this amazingly is this amazingly misunderstood character. Um, and just diving into his history really quickly, here's a kid who grew up with thinking of his father as a backyard tinkerer who had no money. You know, his father was very eccentric. People thought he was strange. The family had no money. By the time Edsel's a teenager, his father is probably the richest, most famous man in the world. Now, think about that. Um, it happened very quickly. Now, Edsel uh, had, had big dreams for himself, and he thought as a young man, a teen, teenager, just a few years after um, the Wright brothers first flew their, you know, their first airplane, that Edsel could do what the airplane industry, for the airplane industry what his dad did for cars. So he thought of himself as this budding aviation engineer. And indeed, with his father's permission, the two of them together launched a Ford aircraft company. And for a short time, due to Edsel, Ford was the biggest airplane manufacturer in the country in the 1920s. Now, two things happened to Edsel. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sum this up very quickly. Um, one is his father was an anti-war activist and refused to allow Edsel to serve in World War I. And Edsel was brutally maligned in the newspapers. I mean, think about it. Here you have this famous man's son who's not allowed to serve in the war while all these other sons in, uh, are heading off to battle and dying in the trenches. And Edsel's at home safely. He was brutalized in the press at a very tender age, a late teenager, early 20s, and it really affected his life. Um, uh, the Great Depression destroyed the aviation engineer, uh, a, a, uh, industry, so he lost his dreams of the future. He, um, so he wanted to be an aviation guy. It didn't work out. And he, didn't, he really had a hard time living up to his father's expectations, and he became a very depressed man. He was the president of Ford Motor Company for, for more than half of his life. Um, but he, he lived in the shadow of his famous father. And when the war came, Edsel saw, saw the war as a last-ditch effort to, to um, become a man. He was dying of cancer when the war began. And uh, he, he threw his company in, into the war effort, thinking this was his last shot at, you know, at dignity and integrity in the public eye. And he died before the war was over. Um, but the war was his, his, uh, his, his uh, I guess, his his defining thing, you know, in the end when he died. Yeah, that had to be his defining moment in his life, uh, AJ. What's interesting also is the dynamic between this father and son. I mean, Edsel wanted to unionize. It was Henry that didn't. Edsel wanted to support the war effort. Henry didn't. Edsel wanted to bring in college-educated executives and corporate flowcharts. Henry didn't. Edsel wanted trained accountants. His dad believed, well, not in accountancy, that's for sure. Edsel liked to smoke, drink, and socialize. Henry was, uh, well, you know, let's just say not exactly the most exciting guy at a party. Uh, so these guys, they had real differences, and yet there was a love between them at the same time that there was this war between them. That's exactly right, and that's what makes the relationship to- so touching because, as I say in the book, you know, these were father, this was a father and a son 
who loved each other desperately. I have a son. I, you know, many of your listeners do. Uh, there's a, it's a very special bond that's not like anything else. But like many in fathers and sons, Edsel and uh, Henry, they really clash. And th- their clash was very much a clash betwe- between modernity and the way things used to be. Um, there was a generation gap there that, that was very hard for, for, the, for the two of them to see to the other side. You write in the book, if ever there was a way for Edsel to live up to his father's legacy and expectations, the airplane was it. And FDR had just asked for 50,000 airplanes in May of 1940. Talk about how Edsel was so critical in the development of this movement into aviation. Yet let's get into maybe one specific story, if we could, AJ, because that's, first of all, it's a staggering number for a president to ask an American manufacturer to come up with whole cloth. Absolutely. The bomber, the four-engine bomber, FDR was convinced, was going to be the key weapon. So what Edsel did was he got, he got his chief engineer, Charlie Sorensen, cast-iron Charlie, they called him, and they flew out together to San Diego to take a look at this new airplane called the B-24 Liberator. The company was called Consolidated. Consolidated had no ability to mass-produce this airplane, which was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. We just had a few of them, and nobody knew how to build them en masse. So Edsel and Charlie Sorensen, they came up with this idea to build the biggest factory in the world, the biggest airplane factory in the world, the biggest factory under one roof of any kind in the world, and try to build the biggest airplane in our arsenal at a rate of one per hour. This had never been done, and certainly not by a company that did not build airplanes. Ford was a car manufacturer. Everybody said it couldn't be done. And Edsel set off on this industrial adventure while dying of cancer, and he passed away before he ever knew whether his dream of building this Liberator at one per hour would succeed. Yeah, that was one of the ironies and the tragedies of the story, A.J., is he didn't get to see what happened. And by the way, just so people know, the B-24 Liberator, the plane was 66 feet 4 inches long, 17 feet 11 inches tall, at a 110-foot wingspan. It was the widest in America. Total takeoff weight was 60,000 pounds. It could travel at 300 miles an hour for over 3,000 miles further than any American plane with the equivalent horsepower, A.J., of 56 Ford V8 cars, and it could carry 8,000 pounds of bombs. So this was a plane that was a difference maker. Um, Talk about the Liberator and the importance to the war effort. Well, some people uh, today might be familiar with the Liberator from the book Unbroken, Lauren Hillenbrand's uh, amazing bestseller in the movie. Um, There's a B-24 featured in that film. Um, but, you know, at the time, in the, at the end of the 1930s into the early 40s, it was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. And the Ford set out to make it the most mass-produced military aircraft in, in the history of the world. It was a game-changer. It wasn't a very friendly uh, airplane. It was very difficult to fly. Um, and uh, it was, it was mass-produced at such a rate that it, there was a lot of glitches and things didn't go well in these airplanes. But... Um, until the B-29 came around, which really happened in, at the end of 1944 into 1945, this was our most destructive bomber. And uh, the Ford succeeded. So still today, still to this day, the B-24 Liberator is the most mass-produced military aircraft in this country of all time. It's really something. And, you know, one of the things I'd recently done was taking my family to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And I think one of the other great innovations was the Higgins boat 
and uh, and Higgins, what he created, Eisenhower had actually told Stephen Ambrose that Higgins was one of the most important unheard of men in the war that most Americans didn't know. And it was for the same reason, innovation and the capacity to just push out thousands of these fast, A.J. And it was the speed and the volume. It must have shocked the Nazis, actually. Absolutely. The, the, the Higgins boat is a fascinating story. It really is. Um, and I saw the, I assume you saw the Arsenal of Democracy exhibit at the World War II Museum, which was up. And I, I spoke, uh, I gave a speech there. I don't know if you saw that one, but what a wonderful museum. And the Higgins boat story is amazing. And I think I mentioned it in, in the book. But it was this whole idea, like FDR said, every man, woman, and child is a part of the greatest undertaking in our American history. There's no doubt. And folks, if you get a chance, New Orleans is worth visiting anyway for the food and the music. For the National World War II Museum, it is my favorite museum in the world. And I, I love museums. There's nothing like it. And they have exhibits there that will make you cry. They'll, they'll make you learn about what remarkable things that generation did. And not just what the generals and the soldiers did, but what some of the business people did. And they, they often get overlooked. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to this song that made Billy Joel an international star. You knew the song from the opening chord progressions, just like great guitarists catch you with a hook, the way Keith Richards did. Elton John and Billy Joel knew how to do that with a keyboard. That's why they were who they were. And this is our best of special one hour. We like to dip back and look at some of our best of the past and one of our favorites was Billy Joel's master class at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was teaching a bunch of students, 2,000 of them, and fans, the craft of songwriting and the business of the music business. During a question and answer period, one young lady asked, because she has a little girl, how did the song Lullaby come to be? Take it from here. All right, so I had this, 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 uh, this melody... how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. Okay. And I told her what I really believed. And what I really believe is what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts that you never really go away. You go into the rest of the people that you knew, you go into the rest of their lives. They, they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing like, Daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. 
I'll, I'll ne- I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it was it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So I'm trying to remember when, when I was right now. So he struggles a little bit more, and he's actually tearing up. You can tell this is a really hard song for him to sing, and this is the thing about music in the end and a story. And think about this. He's, he's really trying to solve a problem. That's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this master class. Here's Billy Joel again. Questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you, and you should always know. And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a, almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always Be a part of me Someday Master song, a master songwriter, shifting it to the future. The little girl singing this lullaby to her little girl. That's what art can do. Take us across time, across generations, race, class, ethnicity. This is Lee Habib, our American stories, Billy Joel's story to his little girl, his little girl's story to her little girl. More after this. And from art to history... 
Here is our piece on the life of Alexander Hamilton, which, by the way, is now art itself on Broadway. Take a listen. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide to camp to then-General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he is one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life. He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis. He had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. His father abandons the family when Alexander is 11. Mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13. He's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical proportion seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once describe how Alexander Hamilton's childhood. Thus, he had more sad stories than the Old Testament. And he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas. He's a precocious young man. In 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix, and this self-taught prodigy sits down, and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, Kings being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the Revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's Churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero. And he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park. So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences. This young man thrives. Hamilton's strange studies? Take a listen. Hamilton also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes called from Plutarch, we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women 
seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. And it is pretty unbelievable. And this is our American stories. Billy Joel, Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton's life... Set to hip-hop, the hottest show in the world. In the world. There's now people being shamed in New York for not having seen Hamilton. Imagine that. This is Lee Habib. This is the best of, of our American stories. Our best stuff made for you, just in case you missed it.